it's always a great privilege, and I hope that what I have prepared for the evening will be a blessing to you. Um, I appreciate you asking for prayers because uh, India is a very interesting place, and sometimes interesting can mean many things. Uh, we will be going to one of the most remote areas of India, which is Nagaland. Nagaland is way up in the northeast. Uh, it's up against Burma and China. Uh, the people up there are tribal people, um, wonderful people. And uh, I'll be able to speak at a graduation of uh, Bible Institute uh, that is actually sitting on the side of a mountain looking in the direction of Burma. And you can actually see the mountain that is at the border of Burma from where we'll be at that school. So please do keep us in your prayers and then we'll be in the city. Uh, we'll be doing the children's programs that Nan has done now for 20, how many years? 20 some years, as well as a pastor's conference. And if all goes well, my friend from Pakistan, Pastor Fassel is going to meet us there and uh, we'll have a great time. I do want to greet you from the Red River Cowboy Church in Sherman, Texas. If you ever find yourselves in the Dallas area, I highly recommend that you go and join the folks at Sherman. It's about an hour north of Dallas. A wonderful group. They just gave us such a great reception and uh, we're so eager to share in the word with us and uh, just such a great privilege to be with them. I'd like to open your Bibles this evening, this Passover evening, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want to begin by asking you a question. What are we celebrating tonight? Passover. Follow-up question. Did you celebrate Passover last Wednesday? Did you celebrate Passover Sunday? That is the problem we have to address because I want to talk to you tonight about the perpetual Passover. And we begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a very familiar passage. I'm just going to read verses 7 to 8. And we've got a lot of passages that we need to look through. And so I'm going to have to try to move along rapidly so that we don't end up just dragging. Uh, but I hope that you'll see the connection in the passages that we're going to look at this evening. So 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7 and 8, I'll read it immediately after I once again lead us before the throne of grace and ask God's blessing on our time together. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, what a marvelous privilege it is for us to gather together this Passover evening in 2023 to remember the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. Father, where would we be without the love of Christ? Where would we be without the hope of the gospel? Where would we be without your word to give us light in this so dark world? So, Father, we are thankful for the opportunity to reflect on just exactly what the Passover means, not only 3,500 years ago when it was inaugurated in Egypt, not just 2,000 years ago when the Lord Jesus fulfilled it at the cross. But what does it mean today and what should it mean each and every day of our life? So guide us as we look through your word. May God the Holy Spirit provide illumination. Open our eyes to the things that you would have us to see. And by your spirit, speak to each one of us individually regarding those things you would have us to learn. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7 and 8. Paul says, Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul is addressing a problem in the Corinthian church. As a matter of fact, in the Corinthian epistle, he addresses 
many, many problems. The Corinthian church was a large church. It was a wealthy church, uh, but it was a church with a lot of problems. As you read through 1 Corinthians, you find that there were at least 10 sins that were going on within the church. This was a very carnal church. And of course, we have to understand that they came out of heathenism. They came into Christianity from not only a background, but a culture that surrounded them with a mindset uh, and with old habits and everything else that would have made it very, very difficult for them to latch on to the truths that many of us take for granted. The problem that he's addressing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is a problem of sexual sin in the church. And as he addresses that problem, he not only rebukes the people involved in the sexual sin, but he rebukes the rest of the church as well. You know, when sin develops within a local church, it's very seldom just the sinner that is guilty. Oftentimes, the problem is not just the person who committed the sin, but it's the people who react to the sin that's been committed. I'm sure we probably have all had experiences like this. On the one hand, you can have the problem that existed in Corinth. Corinth, they were proud of it. Paul said they were boasting about it. And apparently their idea was that because we're under grace, we can just sin with abandon and it doesn't really matter. And so Paul rebukes that attitude. And of course, you also have the problem on the opposite end of the scale, many times of people who become judgmental. Uh, they become very, very critical. Uh, they become hostile instead of helping the people who have fallen to get back up. And that's really what we're here for. Uh, when we have brothers who fall, we don't stomp them further into the mud. Uh, we don't stand and point at them and uh, take uh, delight in their fall. We go, we lift them up, we brush them off, we do everything that we can to restore them. So what is Paul saying here regarding the Passover and how does it relate to the problem of sin in the local church or more particularly, how does it relate to sin in your life and in my life? Paul is using the Passover as an example of three great spiritual realities. The first of those is salvation by grace through faith. He says, since you are truly unleavened, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. And it's very interesting here that in spite of the many sins that plague this local church, Paul reminds them that in Christ they have been made pure. If you go on into the sixth chapter, uh, he cites many sins that were prominent at the time. And he says, and such were some of you, even though some had fallen back into those sins. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were cleansed through Christ. So he reminds them that they are indeed in truth, unleavened. The second great truth is cleansing from sin or cleansing from carnality. Purge out the old leaven. We are not to celebrate with the old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness. And here I think he deals with some of those reactions that happen when sins occur in a church and it's possible for some to be gloating, for some maybe to be boasting, as apparently they were in Corinth, and also for those to be hostile and judgmental. There is cleansing. Purge out the old leaven. There is cleansing available for you and I on a moment-by-moment -moment daily basis, and we're going to deal with that as we move along tonight. The third great truth that he wanted to remind them of is that you and I have the immense and the immeasurable and the absolutely wonderful opportunity to live in daily fellowship with God, to live in fellowship with God day by day, moment by moment. So salvation is the foundation of it all. Salvation provides for daily cleansing. Cleansing, of course, provides for fellowship with God. And the idea of purging out uh, is the idea of washing and cleansing. The idea is that there is need for 
cleansing from sin in the life of the people. It needs to be purged, but I point out the word is katharizo. Uh, it's a word that's important, and I just want to check because I haven't had a whole lot of time to go over this, as you can imagine. Uh, it's coming up later, so I'll deal with this in just a moment. All right? Let's look at the original Passover. If you will, turn with me back to Exodus chapter 12, because I think there are some very important things that are told in this wonderful story that we need to be reminded of. The Passover in Exodus chapter 12. And I'm just going to hit some various verses, and you may want to jot some of these points down and go back and look at it later. What was the Passover all about? You know, of course, that the nation of Israel had gone down into Egypt. You know that they had been there for 430 years. You know that the time came for them to be delivered. God had promised Abraham in Genesis 15 that after four generations, he would bring them up out of bondage. But while they were there, their lives became increasingly bitter. The workload that was placed on them was ever greater and greater, and it ultimately came to the point where because they were reproducing so well and being so blessed by God that Pharaoh gave the order that all of the young male children should be put to death. You remember the story of Moses and how he was delivered, and what a wonderful story that is. You know, it has been the scheme of Satan from the beginning of time to put the children to death, first to keep Jesus Christ from coming into the world, and secondly, from keeping souls that would believe in Jesus Christ from having that opportunity. I think the grace of God uh, wins the victory there nevertheless, but still, what a terrible tragedy uh, through the ages. What does the Passover mean? Let me just give you a few very quick points. Number one, it represented a new beginning. And I want you to think of this in terms of not just what happened 3,500 years ago, but how it relates to you and I today. Verses 1 and 2, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. A new beginning was started. And what do we read in 2 Corinthians 5, 17? Therefore, if any man or any woman is in Christ, they are what? They are a new creation. Salvation by faith in Jesus Christ is the beginning of a new life for you and I. Not just eternal life, but life in the Spirit, life on this earth as a child of God. The second thing that we want to understand is that it was based on a substitutionary sacrifice. The lamb had to be slain. And as you read on uh, in verses 3 through 7, they take the lamb, they observe the lamb for a number of days, they slay the lamb, and then they take the blood and they put it on the doorposts and on the lintel. The Hebrew actually says, strike the doorpost and the lintel. I'm of the opinion it's not really a big issue, but if they struck it, it seems to me taking the hip hyssop, dipping it in the blood, striking the lintel, striking the doorpost, what would they have had? They would have had the sign of a cross written in blood on the door. And so it was based on a substitutionary sacrifice. And what do we read in regard to ourselves? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 tells us that He, God the Father, made Him Jesus Christ who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Christ took our place on the cross in order that His righteousness might be imputed to us. Third, the end goal of the feast was to enter into fellowship with God for the purpose of service in His plan. The end goal was to enter into union with God, fellowship with God for the purpose of service in His plan. In other words, the plan didn't stop at Passover. Passover was the beginning. Passover was the going out. Passover was the great deliverance, but what was the purpose? God had promised the land to Abraham. And the objective was to go out of bondage into the land and claim the land. And how is it for you and I? 
In Ephesians chapter 2, we delight to read in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. Boy, we wipe the sweat off our brow. No works required until we read verse 10. For we are his workmanship. The word that is uh, the root word there is poema from which we get poem. And the idea is we are his craftsmanship or we could say his mastership uh, masterpiece created in Christ Jesus unto what? Unto good works. Our salvation is not just to drag us from the flames of hell. God has a plan and a purpose for our life. God has a plan for us corporately, but he also has a plan for us individually. And he has works in mind for each one of us to accomplish that were planned before the world began. My ear and these things never match up. Bear with me. So the goal was to enter the land. And by the way, you'll, you'll often see people using Canaan as a picture of heaven. Canaan is not a good picture of heaven. In Canaan, there were enemies that had to be confronted, that had to be defeated. There were victories that had to be won. And I like to look at Canaan as a picture of the mature spiritual life, where you go in and by faith you meet and conquer the obstacles that are coming your way moment by moment and day by day. And of course, Tragically, there were only two of the original generation that made it in, and that was, of course, Joshua and Caleb. A fourth truth that comes out of our passage is that the Passover uh, related to the idea of deliverance from the wrath of God. In verses 12 to 13, I will pass through the land of Egypt. Uh, I should back up, pardon me, because the idea of eating the lamb, picked up in verse 11, you shall eat it with a belt on your waist and sandals on your feet and a staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. Why? Because it's the Lord's Passover. What's the purpose? When we finish this, it's time to move out. You know, there's a great tragedy in the Christian world today that many people come to faith in Jesus Christ and they never go anywhere with it. They sit at the foot of the cross, as an old evangelist friend of mine used to say, they suck their thumb till Jesus comes. <laughs> They're not going to grow up. They're not going to become mature. They're not going to become involved in the works that God had for them to accomplish. And the idea is, I want you ready to move out. When a person comes to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is of utmost importance for them immediately to get into the word and begin to grow because the devil has a million ways to keep Christians from ever growing up in their faith. And that's not what we want. So then we move on to deliverance from the wrath of God, verse 12 and 13. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night. I will strike the firstborn of the land of Egypt, man and beast, against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you nor destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Have you ever stopped and thought that those people had to make a conscious decision to believe that God was about to judge Egypt? They had to believe that there was great peril in not doing what he told them to do. You know, this is one of the hardest things for us as we witness to friends and family and relatives is to get them to understand without Jesus Christ, you are in grave peril. Far greater peril than what happened in Egypt. There it was physical death for the unbeliever. It's not just death. It's death and hell and the lake of fire forever and ever. It's appointed unto man. The, book, the author of Hebrews says to die once, but after this comes the judgment. So it was escape from the wrath of God. And I love what Paul tells us in Romans 5 and verse 9 as it relates to us. He says, therefore, having been justified by his blood, we are delivered from the wrath of God through him. That should be something that should motivate you and I 
every single day. What do we deserve? We deserve the wrath of God. What do we have instead? We have life through Christ. We have joy and peace. Why? Because Christ bore the wrath in our place. When we look at the cross, and I know we sing about the blood and, and we talk about the application of the blood, and it's a wonderful concept, but we need to go deeper and we need to realize that when the Bible talks about the blood of Christ, that is simply a phrase used to encompass all that he went through on the cross. On the cross, the scripture tells us that he paid the penalty for the sins of every member of the human race. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that he went to the cross despising the shame because all of us know from our own experience that when sin is exposed, it always brings shame. Christ not only bore the penalty, he bore the shame of every sin of every member in those three dark hours that he hung on the cross, and we will never know fully what that meant. Isaiah gives us some clue in Isaiah 53 and verse 12 when he says that he poured out his soul unto death. So deliverance from the wrath of God is a marvelous thing. Fifth, it was to be a perpetual memorial in Israel. In verse 14, they were told this day shall be to you a memorial. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. And he goes on uh, with that same idea in verse 26 and 27. Uh, it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our whole households. A perpetual memorial. Do you remember what Jesus said to the disciples in the upper room? In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, Paul records it. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we'll be doing that as we gather together on Friday night. But it's something that is to be remembered, something to be memorialized, something to be kept in front of our eyes at all time. A sixth point that is worth noting is that God supplied supernatural provisions for the plan that he had for them. If you look at Exodus 12, verse 35, now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. In other words, they had provisions to carry them to accomplish the plan that God had for them. And we have so much more than what they had. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercies has blessed us with a few spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. No? Right? You have another version? He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Can you just pause for a moment and consider that the treasure house of heaven has an open door and you have a bank account in the treasure house of heaven. Your checkbook is the checkbook of faith and you can write checks on the treasure house in heaven at any time. How little we use of what's available to us all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. What a marvelous promise we have. The failure of Israel, of course, is that Israel went out, and you'll remember uh, as you review your history, First Chronicles tells us that after the death of the prophet Samuel until Josiah, the good king for 400 years, they never celebrated the Passover. Could I suggest to you that that 400 years is very much like our lives are sometimes? We forget where we've come from. 
we forget what we've been given. We forget what we have to do. And we forget the resources that are ours to make it happen. What a tragedy. Well, if you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll develop that problem a little bit further. Because you see, the Jews never really caught on to the idea of the Passover. They enjoyed many, many benefits. I should say they had many, many benefits, but few of them they enjoyed because they didn't take advantage of them. I'm just going to do a quick read through the verses 1 through 12, and then I'm going to highlight a few things for us. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But what a tremendous and terrible conjunction of contrast here. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. How many are the most? Out of about two and a half million, everybody but two. Barring the younger generation. With most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them tempted and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor complain as some of them complained and were destroyed by the, I don't know about you, but if I were a member of the Corinthian church with all the sins that Paul has listed up to chapter 10, including division, schism, false doctrine, sexual immorality, taking one another to law, and you can go on and on and on, I think I'd begin to be a little bit uncomfortable here. Let's not be like the Israelites. He reemphasizes in verse 11, now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Let's just notice a couple of highlights of what Paul brings out here regarding the meaning of the Passover and the effect of it. All of them were delivered out of bondage, and all of them enjoyed an identification and a fellowship with Moses. You know, it's very interesting here. It says, all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Did you know that there are four waterless baptisms spoken of in the New Testament? You might want to jot this down. The first is the most important. It's the one all the others relate to. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 38, in Luke chapter 12 and verse 50, Jesus speaking to his disciples on two separate occasions said, I have a baptism to be baptized with. As a matter of fact, to James and John, who wanted to sit on his right and his left hand, what an arrogant request. You know, let us be the top two guys in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I will be baptized? Why does the scripture use the term baptism for the cross? Well, the second one is the one that we have here, and that is the baptism of Moses. And the baptism of Moses, believe it or not, points forward to the baptism that Jesus Christ spoke of. And I'll clear that up in just a moment. The third Waterless baptism is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until the power of the Holy Spirit had come, come upon them and told them that they would be baptized by the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13, the Apostle Paul says, For by one Spirit have we all been baptized into one body. 
It is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that places us into eternal union with Christ and makes us one body in him. And then the last one, one that I think is confusing to many people, is the baptism of fire. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, John the Baptist mentioned both the baptism of the Spirit and the baptism of fire. And I believe that the baptism of fire, based on the context, refers to the opposite of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. John said, when he comes, he is mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. We could put and or with fire. And what does the very next verse say? For he will thoroughly purge his threshing floor and he will gather the wheat into his barn and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And I believe this refers to the final judgment of unbelievers. Paul here is setting forth before the Corinthian church and before you and I a great truth and a great warning. It is possible to be blessed with the greatest of blessings and to take them for granted. It is possible to have unbelievable spiritual resources and yet always to rely on the flesh. And most tragic of all, it is possible to become a new creature in Christ and too many times to live as we live before we knew anything about him. This is what Paul refers to as carnality in 1 Corinthians 3. And the danger of carnal living is the danger of failing to keep the feast. The feast is a perpetual memorial. It is to be a daily and a living experience of fellowship with God, moving on from our redemption, moving on from our salvation to accomplishing the plan that he has for our life. And the giants that we're going to meet, it's impossible for us to conquer them except by the power of the Spirit of God within us. <clears throat> One last passage, actually a string of passages, John chapter 13. Did you ever wonder why John never recorded anything about the Passover supper? You know, the first three Gospels, we call the Synoptic Gospels because they see together. They basically record similar incidents and circumstances. And then we have the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, of course, is unique. And in the first three Gospels, we read of Jesus in the upper room and we see various snapshots and various pictures of his teaching to the disciples at that time, and then along comes John, and John, not in a chapter or a portion of a chapter, but from chapter 13 to chapter 17. <coughs> I always hate to cough when I have one of these on, pardon me. <clears throat> Sometimes it just about blows the ears out of your listeners. <clears throat> Sometimes can't be helped. What was Jesus doing in the upper room? John records not the event of the Passover, but the teachings relevant to it. And I want to just very briefly hit on a few of the marvelous things that John teaches us about. First of all, in John chapter 13, you'll remember the first act of Jesus. And by the way, could I just read for you because I had a wonderful teacher of the word point this out to me one time and it's always stayed with me if you'll begin in verse one before the feast of the passover when jesus knew that his hour had come and that he would depart from this world to the father having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end supper being ended the devil having already put it into the heart of judas iscariot simon's son to betray him jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. Jesus took the place of the lowliest servant. In ancient times, in the culture of that day, if you entered into a house, 
the task of washing the feet, which would not be very pleasant if you think of walking down a street and you've got sandals on and you're following a herd of camels or a herd of donkeys and there's dogs and there's, you know, whatever other kind of critters uh, that are going around there. You're walking along, the dust on your feet is the accumulation of everything on the street. And you get the task of stooping down and washing the feet of those people. That's the task of the lowliest servant. And that is the place that the Lord Jesus took. But I want you to notice the emphasis on the word knowing. Jesus did what he did. This is Dr. Earl Rodmacher's statement. Jesus did what he did because Jesus knew what he knew. That is a powerful statement. You know the tragedy? Sometimes you and I do what we do because we don't know what we ought. Our Lord stoops down to wash the feet of the disciple. Why? Because cleansing was the issue. If you read in the story of Luke, Luke tells us as the disciples came into the upper room, they were having a discussion. Do you remember what the discussion was about? They were arguing over which of them would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They did not enter into that upper room in fellowship with God. They entered into the upper room in carnality, in arrogance, and in self-centeredness. And therefore, Jesus chose a public, visible action to illustrate for them one of the most important lessons, and we've already seen it in Exodus, in 1 Corinthians twice, and that is the purpose of his sacrifice is for cleansing. And you'll remember as he began to work his way around the room, he comes to Peter, and in verse 6, Simon Peter says to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said, what I am doing you do not understand now, but will, you will know after this. By the way, the terminology Jesus uses here, you're going to know immediately after this. Before that night and next morning was over, Peter would grievously understand his need for cleansing. Verse 8, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered and said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. It's very important that we understand that Jesus is not talking here about salvation. The word part here is meros. And the word meros is a word that is used for a part or a joint participation. We would refer to it as fellowship. If I don't cleanse you, Peter, you have no fellowship with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Don't you just love Peter? I am so glad he is in the scripture. Times when I feel like I'm never going to get it right. I'm never going to quit being a blockhead. I'm never going to stop failing. All I need to do is go back and just study Peter a little bit and he lifts my spirits. As a matter of fact, this last weekend we studied the entire book of 2 Peter. And a couple of weeks ago we studied the book of 1 Peter in Arkansas. So I've had a lot of Peter's theology here over the last couple of weekends. Notice what Jesus said. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. The Lord's talking about two kinds of cleansing here. And whether you're aware of it or not, there are three kinds of cleansing that every Christian must understand. I want to give them to you. I would encourage you to jot them down. The three cleansings of the believer. Number one, of course, is salvation. This is the bath that Jesus refers to here. In Ephesians 5.26, it's spoken of as the washing of water with the word. And in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, the apostle Paul says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. How? By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. This is a once for all total cleansing the cleansing of salvation. But here's the tragedy. So many come to the cross, lay their burdens down, escape from the wrath of God, and then go their way, rejoicing in what happened, but not understanding 
how it applies today. And so the second cleansing is the foot washing that he's talking about here, which is confession. Do you see that Peter had to acknowledge his need for Jesus to wash his feet? Do you know that the Lord Jesus still stands by, girded with the towel, day by day, looking down into your life and in my life, saying, I am here, I am willing, but only when you recognize and acknowledge the need am I going to be able to perform that foot washing. And so this is the confession of sin. 1 John 1, 9, we all know if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And of course, in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, Paul tells Timothy, in a great house, there are all kinds of vessels, some of gold and silver, some of clay and wood, some to honor, some to dishonor. If any man cleanses himself from these things referring to the sins that he had been dealing with in the previous passage, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and fit for the master's use. Do we begin to see what a tragedy it is that we do not keep close accounts with God? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians in relation to the Lord's Supper, and this would be something, a challenge to think about on Friday night. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he who eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks condemnation to himself. We are responsible for our life before the Lord. Pastors can teach us, evangelists can bring us to Christ, others can encourage us, but ultimately it comes down to, am I taking full responsibility for my spiritual life. So salvation is the first cleansing, once for all. Confession is the next cleansing. That's moment by moment and day by day, but that's not where it should end. Some people say, well, I examine myself daily, confess my sins, so I'm good. No, you need to move on to the third. You know, when I was a little boy, we went to church all the time. I never heard the gospel in this church, but still we went. And uh, mom had three little boys dressed in three little sailor suits. I still remember my little sailor suit shorts and, you know, the, the black coat and the white shirt. And I always refer to the white shirts as cardboard shirts because back in those days they used to starch them and it scratched my neck and I hated it. They would, I'm good. They would dress me up and send me out and say, now, what? Don't get dirty. <laughs> so here I am, five, six years old. I go out the door. First thing I notice, a mud hole. And I just can't resist the temptation. And so here I am splattered with mud. My mom comes out. Finally, her and, her and my dad have gotten ready to go. And here I am, a total mess. And, you know, we're late for church. And she has to rush me in, clean me up, and so on and so forth. The whole time me crying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Right? Well, that's confession. So she cleans me up and says, now... I'm just going to be a minute and we'll be ready to go. Go back outside. I go, well, I should tell you, my father saw to it that there was a little bit of encouragement not to get muddy again. Okay. My mom was very gentle. My dad was very strict. So I go back outside again and I'm walking around. And the first thing I notice is something to get into. I start toward it. And then I remember, last time I did that, it hurt. That's the third cleansing. Because the third cleansing that we see in the New Testament is the cleansing called obedience. Listen carefully to this. We often focus only on 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.7 comes before it. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of his son Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing us from sin you know the great thing about this cleansing it's not cleansing after the fact it's cleansing before the fact becomes a problem 
It keeps us from that mud hole in life. And so as Jesus goes through, and I'm just going to list these for you. I don't have time to turn to all of them. You may want to just jot them down. I've taken up too much time and I've had way too much fun with you. Um, so just if you would jot these down. Jesus teaching on the Passover is first of all the provision for cleansing. Chapter 13, verse 7 to 11. Secondly, the provision for power. You'll remember that he teaches them in John 14, verses 12 through 18. He who believes in me, the works that I do, he'll do greater works. Whatever you ask the Father, I will do. And then he explains why all of this is going to happen. He says, the Holy Spirit's been with you, but now he's going to be in you. That's the provision for power. The third thing is the perpetuation of the feast. This is what we're talking about. A perpetual feast. Jesus in John 15 says, abide in me and I will abide in you. He who abides in me and my word abides in him. If you read from John 15, 1 through 8, he will bear much fruit. The abiding life is the perpetuation of the Passover. In other words, we get to live the Passover every day. It's very much like the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, there remains therefore a Sabbath for the people of God. And then he picks up that idea in verse 11 and says, let us therefore be diligent to enter into his rest. You know, so many times we go through life struggling, anxious, filled with fears and doubts, or bearing burdens that we were never intended to bear. And God the whole time is calling us, enter into my Sabbath, enter into my rest. So not only should we have a perpetual Passover, we should also have a perpetual Sabbath. And then we have the land to conquer. We've been given provision for cleansing, power, perpetuation of the feast, but there's a land for us to conquer. And in chapter 16, verses 7 to 14, the Lord calls us to join together with the Spirit in the work of convicting the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, why? Not because of the things they do. He makes it very clear of sin because they believe not on me. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but there's only one sin that'll send any soul to hell. It's the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ. All other sins were paid for at the cross. And therefore, we call the world to come out of that sin, to escape from that judgment, and to enter into that wonderful and marvelous relationship with God through faith in Christ. That is the land we have to conquer. And the journey that we have before us, God gives us a staff to carry us through. That's the last point. Remember, they were to have their staff in their hand. Say, what is our staff? If you go to John 17, verses 14 to 19, the Lord Jesus Christ, as a matter of fact, let's just wrap it up there. John 19, I just can't quit. John 19, this is beautiful. I'm sorry, John 17, verse 14. Listen to what Jesus says here. I have given them your word. How many of you have a Bible in your lap? Do you know where we're going? There are people that would give anything they have to have a Bible. You know what? If they had it, they would be reading it every single day. They would immerse themselves in the word of God. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. That's what we would like him to have prayed. But that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. Notice verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And he's going to repeat that actually later on. It's so important. He brings it up again in John 20, uh, verse 21. As the Father has sent me, 
so I send you. By the way, that's the theme for my message to about 100 graduating students from the theological college in Nagaland in a remote corner of this world that most people will never see. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. How do we keep the feast? We keep the feast with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We keep applying the cleansing power of the blood of Christ. We daily feed on the word of God and drink of the spiritual drink of the spirit. We go forth into the world equipped to do his will, making the gospel known and bringing others to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. My hope and my prayer is that you and I and all of us will continue to enjoy and to celebrate a marvelous Passover every day. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful and indeed we're overwhelmed with the marvelous provisions that you have made for our lives. Father, those of us who have come to Christ in faith know the relief that deliverance brings, know the peace that comes, that passes understanding. But Father, there may be some here this evening who have never trusted Christ as their Savior. There may be those who are later going to listen to this message uh, as it goes out on the airwaves in various ways who have never trusted Christ as their Savior. I pray, Father, that you will make it clear to them that it is as simple as being a little child. Jesus said, except you become as little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And what you ask of us is something so simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. My prayer is that those who, even as they hear this, may make that decision to entrust their souls to him, to believe him, to be who he says that he is, and to have done what the scripture tells us he did on the cross, dying in our place, providing us his righteousness and eternal life. I pray that they will come to you in simple, humble, and childlike prayer as they express to you their gratitude. Paul tells us that with the heart, we believe under righteousness, but with the mouth, we confess. And therefore, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let that be a reality for someone this evening or later on. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you all.